Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data. Today, I have the absolute joy of talking to Dr. Charles Van Rees about the life cycle of data, how to collect data, what even is data, the types of data. It's just a big old data nerd fest. So aside from being one of my very dearest friends and a board member over at Canine Conservationists, Charles is a conservation scientist and a naturalist who combines research and nature interpretation to change how we manage, protect, and relate to the natural world. He is a published scientist with just like so, so much incredible research under his belt. He currently is studying at the, uh, he's currently a postdoc, I'm sorry, at the University of Georgia. He was a Fulbright scholar at the Estación Biológica de Doñana. Um, he has worked at the Flathead Lake Biostation in Montana, which is where we originally met. Um, he's just an incredible person. I think you're really going to enjoy this podcast. We try to bring the things back to dogs a lot. It does get pretty nerdy. We go into the weeds. I hope you enjoy it. And I'm really, really excited to give get you guys to this interview. Um, again, Dr. Van Rees is one of my best friends, and um, he's probably going to, you're going to be hearing more of him on this podcast, because um, we've got a lot of things left on the table to talk about. But before we get to it, we've got to talk about our weekly suggestion. This one comes from Charles. So he suggests that we make sure we take the time to see, smell, and just notice things outside. You know, one of my favorite things about being outside with Charles is that we both find so much delight in just, you know, a little bug on a flower or um, a, a beautiful yellow warbler that just flies across a river. And there are these, these little things, you know, even as you're walking down a street um, on your way to the grocery store or whatever, you might notice like, oh my gosh, the most perfect little ladybug on a leaf. Um, just, you know, notice those things. Take a deep breath. Um, you know, I, I can't agree with that suggestion more. And the last thing before we get to this is that um, we finally have a new review. Um, I, You all know how much these new reviews mean to me, how excited I get when we get reviews on Apple Podcast. Um, if you go ahead and give us a review, you will just absolutely make my day. I know that there is like 900 plus of you listening to this podcast. And yet we only have like 20 some reviews. So uh, step it up guys. <laughs> um, but this week's review highlight says that I found this podcast while browsing a while back, binged all the episodes in about a week. It's super great to learn about the field of conservation canines. As a dog trainer trying to find my training passions, this podcast has inspired me to chase conservation training for a while. Even when technically heavy, Kayla finds a way to make the information easy to understand. So I hope that we live up to this reviewer's expectations in this episode, because again, it is pretty heavy. Um, and again, these reviews just make my day. So if you can do one nice thing for me, because I do put the, so much time and love and effort into this podcast for free for y'all, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. So now let's get to it with Dr. Charles Van Rees. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Charles. Thanks so much, Kayla. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a real fan of what you guys do. And honestly, I, I mean, I just think the whole idea of conservation detection dogs is a fantastic overlap of things that I think are lovely. <laughs> So. Yeah, <laughs> it's an easy thing to get behind in my uh, yes. in my experience. I mean, obviously, I'm biased, but um, yeah, I think it's easy to get behind. So um, let's start out with kind of what is data? Our data is data. What? How do you how do you refer oh, to yeah, data? Yeah, and yeah, what yeah, is yeah. data? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I guess we can delve into the grammatical stuff later. But there, I, there's something to do. D data, I guess, is plural for datum or datum and. And thus, okay. people tip, tip, like I think, 
if you're <laughs> trying to be a stickler about it, you would say what are data and some people get a hang up about, about that. I, I sometimes do, but usually only in scientific <laughs> context. Um, yeah. but what, what is data? Uh, I think from, a practicing scientists point of view from the mm -hmm. point of view of someone like me, data is or are, uh, uh, information that we can, usually it's information that we can, uh, use for inference and use for learning things. And so it, okay. it doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, we have this point of data and now we know something, but it's something that we can then then use through processes of statistical inference, like using math to understand the probabilities that certain things are true or not true, um, to test certain hypotheses, to make syntheses and generalizations. So all that to say in a fancy way, <laughs> uh, data is individual bits of information Okay. that in summary we can use for useful knowledge i would say okay yeah so can you give us an example of like a uh, some data set um that potentially you've used for your work as phd postdoc actual scientist and then you know because i i think the reason we're talking about this today is because you know our tagline at canine conservationists is dogs detecting data yeah i love that. but then you know we have this question of like what is the data or what are data and then where does it go what does it do that's you know that's the whole thing we're talking about today so why don't we talk about an example of data that you've used, because I think the listeners are probably familiar with some of the data that my dogs and I have already collected. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, I like this idea. This is sort yeah. of reminding me of, um, maybe I'm dating myself here, it reminds me of like Schoolhouse Rock, like the life of the bill. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Like, what are the, what are these, what are these or this data doing, right? Um, yeah. So I guess, yeah, so to get past my very hand wavy academic fancy sounding definition of data sometimes examples are a better way to define things and i think that yeah i think you're <laughs> very right to ask that question um going super like not not too directly in my work just yet um i think that the data that are most often used in conservation biology which and, and conservation science which that's sort of my field and discipline uh one of the most basic ones are what we call occurrence data and okay that would be knowing a place and a time where uh, usually a species or an individual from a population was. Okay. And if we get enough of those across time, we get information about the spatial distribution, we call it, where mm -hmm. those animals are found in time and space. Does mm -hmm. that change over the course of the year? Does that Has that been changing over plural years, which in conservation mm -hmm. is a big deal, right? Because we're worried about what we call uh, spatiotemporal trends. Do we see the range in which this animal is found shrinking or that distribution? Mm -hmm. Do we find fewer of them across time? Uh, we see them less often. Is that a concern? Mm -hmm. that's, that's, in my opinion, some of the most basic, real bread and butter data in ecology and especially in conservation. And the collection, another kind of good vocab word that will probably come up, when you collect those sorts of data across time intentionally to look for patterns, you're doing what's called monitoring, which again, mm -hmm. when I think of conservation detection dogs, I'm like, shoot, like that's another major place where, you know, you guys are contributing tremendously. Um, yeah, so, so I guess, so a lot of my work, especially during my PhD, focused on endangered water birds in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And a major thing with a lot of 
organisms is finding them in the first place so that you can get that occurrence data. You need to go out there and see them somewhere and confirm that you absolutely saw them somewhere to have a useful data point. Sure. So uh, the, the, the birds that I was working with at the beginning, the Alaiula or Hawaiian common gallinule, really f- funny little animals, they uh, are extremely shy mm-hmm. and very secretive. And so actually detecting them and being like, oh, yeah, there's one here, data point, was really difficult. And, yeah. that, and that really mattered, right? So I, I was actually uh, mentoring a fantastic uh, pair of undergraduates when I was at Tufts, who did this great project of trying to understand, you know, what makes good habitat for the Alaiula, which because they're endangered, we want to know that so that we can make mm-hmm. more of that habitat. But if we don't have an understanding of what uh, aspects of the environment are associated with them being there, then how can you figure out what they like? You can't go ask them. Right. That's very, right. That would be highly impressive. So what we need to do is just go to a bunch of different places. And essentially, of course, it gets fancier with the, the math and the statistics. But essentially what we're doing is visiting a whole bunch of different places and saying, well, what's what is similar uh, mm-hmm. among the ones that have them and what's different from the ones that don't have them? Mm-hmm. And that's what occurrence data can do for you. You can see, well, where are they found? Where are they not found? What does that tell us about the habitat needs of this animal? And then in terms of the lifetime of that data, you know, that then goes to the managers and they say, oh, you know what? You guys always found Alaiula in, let's say, marshes that had more patches of open water. Okay. Well, we can do that. That's something that we can yeah. get in a, a, you know, a backhoe and like open up some space in the marsh and we're sure. going to do more for this endangered species. So, that's that's an example of kind of the applications uh, and one really basic form of data, and you can scale up from there. And there's all sorts of other mm-hmm. you know things too. But uh, you know, abundance data is usually the next scale, which is you didn't just okay. see whether or not they were there, but you saw how many were there. Mm. And of course, that's even more difficult because you have to count them. And then there's you know, did you miss one or did you overcount accidentally? There's all these issues around that. Um, yeah, again, all these things that dogs are like ludicrously good at. Um, <laughs> But but those sort of that those sorts of types of data are the things that are I think most often part of what I do at least mm-hmm. on a regular basis as a as a conservation biologist and you you use them in so many different ways you know you, you can use them to figure out again habitat quality and things historical trends types of management and whether or not they they work. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, things like that. And then that, that goes into all sorts of larger decision making, because then people like me who are sort of on the on the border between the science part and the doing part and, and also talking to decision makers like, you know, we'll be we'll be figuring out those patterns. And then the idea is you communicate those with the people who are doing the stuff on the ground or the people who are making the big decisions. And they say, OK, now we've we've learned something from that information. There's all these different ways we can do that. Let's make some decisions about how we mm-hmm. deal with environmental policy or protecting that species and, and so on. Um, so ideally, and of course, there are always problems with this, but ideally there is, you know, every one of those data points is contributing in some way, right, uh, to mm-hmm. some, some, some useful learning that then can be uh, move forward into a policy decision or something that affects us in the real world. 
Yeah, and I feel like you've made a bunch of good points here already. I don't feel like you have. You have already made a bunch of really good <laughs> points here. Um, as far as, you know, hitting on a couple of the things that make for a good data set. You know, you mentioned making sure that you're not double counting a bird, which I would imagine from what I know about the the Aleula, right? Mm -hmm. Um they're not necessarily all that individually identifiable unless you've got like a, a banding system or something or or are they right yeah mm -hmm. so it's really challenging if you've got you know you've got five and then they kind of go around a bend in the marsh and then they come <laughs> back and then there's three and it's like oh god is is that eight or is that five yeah, i'm like and reliving nightmares left. right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly um so it's not just information it's not just counting but also making sure we're counting in this really reliable way yeah um, the, and the, our jargon for that as scientists is rigorous yeah yes yeah exactly and one of the other things that i'm thinking of that you you didn't hit on but is an interesting point when we're talking about dogs versus humans for collecting data which is you know the point of what we're talking about today are dogs with humans mm -hmm. um because we don't you know we don't want to like say that it's dogs versus humans because every time i'm out in the field i'm also working as a field tech so you've always got both yeah, every time you've right. got a dog you've got a person yeah, Marley's not out there um, working alone <laughs> he is he's terrible with gps it's really like you know he's just not great at it um so you know that's my job um but also you know we don't want people to think that we're poo-pooing their field techs or mm -hmm. or their their people mm -hmm. but one of the things that we do see with detection dogs sometimes is that they will often have different biases from people so one of the things mm -hmm. that can come up and i don't know if this is a problem in any of your particular study species but um in some some animals, it's much easier for human searchers to find the more, you know, the sexually mature males or the more the animals that are high, ranked higher in the dominance hierarchy or things, because those are the more visible animals that are moving through the environment in a way that is easier for humans to see. Mm. And because dogs are kind of working in this old factory world, yes. it's easier for them to tap into some of these these subordinate animal, animals, the immature animals, the transient animals. Um, and yeah. all of that goes for plants as well. It's really right. obvious with plants where, you know, it's really easy for a human searcher to find a plant that's as tall as they are in a, or a lot of environments. Right? Yeah, or it's flowering or whatever. Um, but as soon as you're talking about like a two inch tall rosette, um, humans just really yeah. don't have a yeah, prayer yeah. in a lot of cases. I. I... I really like the, the the point you're making here, which which makes me think of another sort of ecology science nerd thing we can touch upon mm -hmm. briefly. But um, there's a there's a I don't know if it's called emerging anymore. It was emerging when I was in graduate school, but that's uh, mm. anyway. There's there is a, a field in ecology called sensory ecology, which mm -hmm. is sort of this idea of studying the ways that different organisms view and experience the world through, for example, what you were touching upon, this idea of dominant sensory modes, mm -hmm. right? And, and this is this is a, this is a weird one. Like, we as humans are the strange mammals. Yeah, most mammals are living a very sniffy world. Everything yeah. is about the sniffs and mm -hmm. what they're smelling and what they're putting out and everybody's mm -hmm. stinking a different way. And that's how they're getting their, you know, working out their stuff. Uh, and primates happen to be unusual. And we yeah. are all, you know, these weird looking animals with flat faces and these eyes going super, like all, you know, facing super forward. There isn't, yeah. we don't look like a lot of other mammals. Um, mm -hmm. And we're super, super visual. 
And yeah, I guess I'm not super up on human olfaction, but the things that I've read have mostly said that like, you know, we have a pretty darn sensitive nose for certain things. Yeah, my understanding, because but... I, I think actually, I believe Dr. Nathan Hall has talked about this before, um, probably on the on the Canines Talking Sense podcast. Um, mm -hmm. Humans are actually, we can actually, I believe, oh God, I feel like I'm going to get this wrong. We either have more receptors or we can actually outperform dogs in finding vanillin. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, um, there were certain things that we're probably better at. Yeah, and I believe um, both the books, um, Inside of a Dog, which I believe is by Dr. Alexander Horowitz, and um, What the Dog Knows, whose author is escaping me, both of these books talk really explicitly about this. Both of those authors, I believe, are um, search and rescue handlers, so they're talking a mm -hmm. lot about being out searching for missing or yeah. deceased people, um, and talking a lot about, like, learning how the dogs perceive and you know talking about yeah we've got these uh, this binocular vision we're mm -hmm. upright we have you know if, even if you just think about like how tall the average human is we're actually taller than a lot of animals that are much much bigger than us which mm -hmm. makes it easier mm -hmm. to see more stuff mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. you know being taller sometimes helps for olfaction but not really uh, all that point. much yeah yeah, yeah. So we're just so yeah, we're so visual focused that we're going to have those biases. And again, if you're studying anything that is operating in a sensor space that is different than humans, mm -hmm. probably a dog is going to be a lot better way to find those things um, in, in, in a lot of cases. Uh, in, in fact, one of the one of the few places uh, wh where humans seem to have an easier time, and you can see this in both people's hobbies and in the science is ornithology and bird watching is like mm. birds they definitely operate in a scent space and there's a lot of stuff that dogs can do with regards to birds and we'll get there i hope mm -hmm. <laughs> uh that's better than what we can do but like the reason people like bird watching so much is because birds interestingly operate on much more of the, a similar sensor space to primates than primates do yeah. to the rest of mammals like we are freaky we're like weird bird mammals but like birds are all about sounds that are specifically mostly in our hearing range and yeah. then they're all about um, types of light and color that are mostly mm -hmm. within our vision range. They do, they can see some colors you know, a little further on either side of the spectrum yeah. than we can. Um, but like, that's why it doesn't require a lot of fancy equipment a lot of time to study birds. Like you could just go out there, you can hear what they're saying and see what they're doing because they're speaking the same language. Right. But like, I can't go out and study wolves like that. They're, they're living this whole universe of sniffs <laughs> that I can't, like mm -hmm. I'm, nose blind to that <laughs> exactly no that's an actual term that's used quite often around humans is in, in like yeah nose blind oh really um, <laughs> yeah yeah no that's that's a term that i've heard quite frequently um <laughs> yeah I like I, I that already <laughs> yeah i can go out and i can tell like oh that male song sparrow is starting to set up a territory he's mad because so and so is moving mm -hmm. in over here and i can mm -hmm. hear all of that and i can be aware of it I can't go out and say, ooh, that mink that passed through last night, she was coming into heat. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, like I can't do any of that with a mammal. Um, and we might not know this, uh, both Charles and Kayla, but also humans in general, is I wonder being more visual to me, to me, it would make sense that that would track to some degree with being a little bit more arboreal and operating in this like 3D space. Like you need some amount of visual acuity mm. to be operating in that really 3d space yeah, um yeah i don't know i mean bats 
are kind of an exception, but they've got different a different superpower. Um, <laughs> true. Very true. You know, who needs to who needs to see when you can use freaking echolocation? <laughs> you can scream <laughs> to see. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, what a weird, uh, what a, <laughs> one of my favorite things to just think about, um, like the concept of like Umwelt, is that something you're familiar with? No. Oh, oh my gosh. Um, Franz de Waal talks about it a lot. Um, he's, uh, he wrote a, an incredible book called, Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? Mm. Um, and one of the things that is really common in this field of like animal cognition is this, this idea of Umwelt, which is basically the idea of understanding how your study subject, how another animal interacts with the world. So kind of like this sensory, sens what was it? Sensory, oh, sensory biology? ecology. Mm -hmm. Sensory ecology. Um, mm -hmm. And they use it a lot in animal cognition studies to think about, so if you've got a dolphin and you're trying to figure out, can this dolphin recognize itself in a mirror? And therefore, does it have a theory of mind? One of the things you would do with people or um, with chimps is you might knock them out and then put something on their on their face to see if then when you show them the mirror, they try to rub that um, that red dot off their face. Mm. And the theory is then they recognize that that mirror is themselves and then they're trying to get the thing off their face. Right. And people did this at some point with dolphins and the dolphins didn't do anything. And it's like, well, there's two major things wrong with that. This dolphin lives a world of echolocation is inside of a tank. So the, the mirror is outside of the tank and a dolphin doesn't have hands. Like how on earth would a dolphin <laughs> try to, like, how would you know that they're trying yeah. to remove a red dot from their face, even if we're assuming, and also I'm not sure in the study if they used red, but if they used red, that's a horrible choice for an aquatic animal, can marine animal. Yeah. 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 Mm. Even if they can see it, like do, what's the point of a marine mammal seeing right. red? There's plenty of people and they had, can see red. <laughs> yeah. And they actually, and similarly, they've done this study with dogs. Um, and dogs also didn't really react. But again, these dogs are so olfactory. And they did, someone then later thinking about Umwelt came along and did another study. And I will try to dig up all these studies because I'm sure I'm like quoting my like 2015 college course right now. Right. Um, okay. <laughs> I will try to dig them all up for our show notes. Um, but for dogs, when they changed it, and I think they did something really weird where they altered the scent of the dog's urine somehow and then uh -huh. re-exposed it the dog to their own urine and the dog spent much longer investigating their own urine when they were like that doesn't smell like what i ate yesterday or you know oh, whatever wow. it was <laughs> which like if if dogs were designing a test to see whether or not humans could recognize ourselves they would probably mess with our urine yeah and we'd be like and whatever we would i just took a pee that test horribly <laughs> yeah it's yeah, like why isn't the toilet flushing <laughs> um you know i mean it's it, it comes down to like that saying of like if you want to test there's some saying about like if you want to test a fish's intelligence don't base it on well how well it flies oh, or something yes, there's yes. something along those lines mm -hmm. i don't remember what it is mm -hmm. um i've completely lost our thread but this is like a fascinating crossover of like sensory cool ecology yeah. and animal cognition um yeah i mean i okay, guess we so, were just go ahead i was gonna say so we've got this like this occurrence data we've got this abund abundance data and then when we've got these data, whatever. <laughs> I'm, this is going to get old. <laughs> um, then, what about these more like longitudinal studies? Like, I just finished reading um, Doug Chadwick's book, The Wolverine Way, and that was a, oh, about these. A, a fabulous book. Oh my god, mm -hmm. incredibly beautiful and just really cool science journalism. Um, and in that book, they're documenting a lot of following these wolverines using both GPS collars and other implanted transmitters. So that's not really a current 
or abundance necessarily. That's actually following an individual longitudinally. Is there a word for that? What is that? <laughs> hey, everyone. Just popping into this episode with an update on our Patreon. We still have the $3 a month doggy detector level, which allows you to ask questions for me and the guests to answer each episode, but now also lets you join our monthly training video analysis calls. These calls are going to be recorded, of course, and we'll also publish the video afterwards for everyone to view and ask questions about prior to the call to ensure that all time zones can participate fully. So we'll basically publish the video we're going to analyze so that you can ask questions and view it and prepare ahead of time. Then we'll have the call where we talk about it. We can have beverages. It'll be a good time. And then all of that is going to be shared later. So you can participate before, during, and after. Again, just for three bucks a month. Now, at the $10 a month sensational scientist level, you get everything that we got before at the $3 level, plus you get to submit videos of your training sessions for those calls. So this is perfect for the aspiring canine conservationist, and your target odor doesn't really matter here as long as you do communicate what it is so we can think intelligently about your goals. Um, so this is going to be great for nosework competitors and other canine handlers as well, and we're really striving to make these video calls super kind and supportive and helpful, so um, it's going to be a nice safe place on the internet to get good feedback back on your training sessions because I know how much of a struggle that can be, especially in the set work world. So then finally, the canine conservationist patrons get everything from those other two tiers, plus a private 30-minute training call with me to go over whatever you're running into with your dog. That tier is just 25 bucks a month, and that's cheaper than booking my time at journeydogtraining.com for behavior modification, and that's just because I love you and I love my patrons. That's definitely something to check out. You can join that Patreon over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or at the link at canineconservationists.org. It's like a tiny link up in the top bar. And then we also drop that link into our show notes. So if you're listening on your podcast app, you should be able to find it just right from there. So thank you guys so much. And let's get back to the episode. Oh, geez. I mean, in terms of the, the typology of data, I think typically we're referring to that as time series data. Okay. And there are certain you know mathematical assumptions that you have to account for when you're analyzing that, but that's not really something we did dig into so much. But yeah, I do that, not. That, yeah, exactly. Please, um, but but studying individual animals, or or I guess I might even go into like talking about that as identity data that you you, mm. you now dot, you're not only just looking at how many of something or whether it's there or not, but who is it, right? Yeah. And then people how do they really use the environment, you know, morphizing or what have you. But like, mm -hmm. really, like, Kinda. who is this? Is this number 875? Yeah. Or is this number 217B? Yeah. Or is it Bob or George or Helen or whatever you choose to name? That yeah. If you're doing that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, Flo and Flint and, and yeah, uh, Fifi. Like, I ended up with nicknames despite my best <laughs> efforts. <laughs> I mean, I was I was actually naming chimps from Jane Goodall's study because I'm oh, the sort nice. of person who knows all of their names. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I mean, I'm not super surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, well, Flo was the major. She was she like was like the the main the female who like the most reproductively successful female in in. Uh, Gamboa. Goodness. <laughs> yep. So, and all of her babies had F names, so they're easy to remember. Oh, oh okay. That's a good way to do yeah, it. Yeah, that's how, that's, they kind of, uh, she, she like named them with like matrilineal letter names. So there's like a G family and an F yeah. family. And nice to have a system. I like that. But, but this, this yeah. brings up a very important point that, mm -hmm. so this could, so the two things we're touching on now, this extra dimensions of data, we have mm -hmm. the, 
the longitudinal side, which is if you're collecting uh -huh. data over a long period of time, you can learn all these special things about what changes at long time scales, right? Another issue we have in our sensory world as humans is that we exist on a certain time scale. We live whatever, 80 years or 60, yeah. <laughs> you know, we have a certain generation time. We operate on those scales. Some animals live way the heck longer than us. Some of them live way shorter than us. Um, but mm -hmm. we have a perception of time, not just a perception of space and vision and whatever that is different. And so you need to, you know, different ecological phenomena and uh, species are operating at these different yeah. temporal scales that we also, in order to understand them, we usually need to study things across time, especially mm -hmm. when we're dealing with things like what we call now global change, planetary change, which mm -hmm. has to do with both both global climate change, but also, you know, deforestation, water scarcity, all these changes we make in the planet, those impacts operate at such big scales that we would not know that there are things happening unless we had people studying them for long periods of time. And that's hard, right? Like all it takes really is hard. Like a few things to go wrong and suddenly you miss five years of data or you run out of money and you can't go do that study anymore. Like there, there's a whole branch of the National Science Foundation, I believe it's the NSF, that is like based around funding long-term studies yeah like, like long-term ecological studies oh, well and i'm just trying i'm just thinking of like like a bristlecone pine which can easily live for five thousand years <laughs> okay like i don't yeah. care how good the nfs nfs long-term funding <laughs> plans are <laughs> it's not gonna happen <laughs> um and i mean like now we're i mean like on it like if we've got any geologists in the audience like i'm mm. sorry because um, at least most biotic things that we're looking at are on a time scale that we can at least kind of wrap our heads around, mm -hmm. with the exception mm -hmm. of then when we get into some of these really long-lived trees. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's still, but even if you're looking at, you know, a whale or a tortoise or something that does live on a, a scale similar to humans, you know, it's really, or even studying humans. Like I know I've read and listened to some really interesting studies just looking at trying to look at like childhood effects or, you know, childhood factors and then following into adulthood. It's really hard to even do those studies with our own species. Mm -hmm. And we can follow our yep. own species in theory and like keep up with their address changes or whatever. But, yeah, you know, like, yeah. forget it when you're looking at, like, a humpback. <laughs> right, right. But, and, um, that, and that ties into, the you know, the other aspect of data that we're discussing, this other possibility of identity, right, mm. which is easier for us with us because we can recognize yeah. faces and whatever. I think a lot of people imagine animals, for example, as being more homogenous than we are because mm. they can't tell the difference between them. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's, again, a sensory thing. It's like we're not used totally. to staring at the faces of dozens and dozens of magnolia warblers. So we can't tell a difference <laughs> between a bunch of male mm -hmm. magnolia warblers. Whereas, like, I guarantee you, if you were a male magnolia warbler, you'd be like, oh, that's Frank. He's a real jerk. And I hate that guy. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. but but when you know identity, then you get to learn all sorts of interesting trends mm -hmm. about, oh, well, like what makes them more successful or how many babies mm -hmm. they typically have in their life. Uh, how do their social dynamics work? You know, knowing the, yeah. the identity of an individual allows you to, to make these kind of narrative stories that can that can tell you all these other things and look at 
correlates of behavior and interactions and things. And yeah. there's another, you know, big dimension there, which, and I'm trying to like, make sure we're continuing, like, as we wander off into these, I want like, to at least try to try to help you out by tying them back into dogs a bit. Like, I appreciate like, that. Thank as you. humans, right? Like we, you mentioned banding birds. Like that's why we do it because yeah. like, honestly, I had stared at so many Alayula by the time I was done with my PhD that like, yeah, I could tell some of them apart just from some things mm -hmm. I was picking up on, but not like that, you know, we yeah. still have to put these color bands on them. Um, well, and even with our dogs, you know, I've had time. I actually, there's a very, a really um, like border collies, like Barley, my border collie. He's long haired. He's black and white. He's got floppy ears. He is the quintessential border collie. If you go to a pet food store and you go to buy a bag of Hills pet food, the dog on the front of that looks a lot like Barley. I can tell it's not Barley, but I will tell you at least once at a park, I have had a different border collie run up to me and think it was my dog. <laughs> <laughs> and I live with him. Yeah. Right, <laughs> but, well, right. and so part of the reason I was asking about this kind of like this longitudinal individual level data is because one of the things I find really interesting about it is it's one of the areas where I think I see less application for dogs. Mm. Um, and it, it's a little bit less um, clear to me how a dog would. I can see dogs supplementing the that work, but not necessarily replacing, particularly when we're talking about these big studies with collared animals. Um, and especially, yeah. again, like, I mean, I'm obviously, like, picking on these wolverines because it's just, like, that's the book I've recently read. But in theory, you could train a dog to track an individual wolverine. There are some dogs in Africa that have been trained to track individual rhinos for some right. of this longitudinal data. Right. Um, but at what point is it no longer practical, um, especially when you're looking at a, an animal like a wolverine that treats, you know, the the shortest point between uh, the shortest distance between any two points is the right way to go, regardless of the terrain <laughs> in between. Right. right. At least as a human handler, I disagree. Barley might not mind following wolverines around. I would. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So it's just it's interesting to think about, like, dogs are super duper helpful for this occurrence data. In yeah. particular, they're so good at finding stuff that's hard to find. Right. They're pretty good. Uh, they're really, really helpful for this abundance data, but a lot, like, eh, not quite as much for this this third chunk of kind of the individual level, level like, how they're moving through space, mm -hmm. what their life story is like. Because um, some of that, you kind of need to see it. Like, just knowing where an animal is, which dogs can do, you know, is is it here? Was it here? When was it here? Right. That's useful, but what was it doing there? That's where, you know, a camera trap or actually having eyes on an animal might be most necessary for your question, which kind of ties into one of the upcoming episodes I'm going to be recording. So it'll come out a while after this, but it's going to be with a couple other conservation dog handlers and thinking about what you need to know before you hire a conservation dog team. And I think that's one of the oh, things wow. we're kind of circling here is like, if you're a biologist, if you're a conservation scientist, or a decision maker in any way, you know, mm -hmm. and you're listening to this podcast and you're like, oh my God, Kayla and her dog sound so cool. I'd love to hire her. Well, cool, you guys great. are so cool. Of we're not, not going to be debating that point. <laughs> of course. But are the questions you're trying to ask actually questions that are best yeah. served by having dogs involved? Totally. Um, and we're, again, I'm planning on doing at least one more episode. That's great. Wholly on that question. Yeah. So, um, I think we've answered this question a little bit already, but what are some of like the challenges in data collection? Again, we've already hit on some, but have we, are there any that we haven't brought up yet that you wanted to make sure we mentioned? Well, let me think. So are we, are we thinking specifically about challenges that are addressed by 
conservation dogs or, or no no because you don't you don't like you haven't worked with conservation dogs you don't have to answer that question what are some <laughs> of the things that are hard about being a phd in conservation biology and behavioral oh. ecology like what are some of the i mean <laughs> oh my goodness here we go buckle up <laughs> yeah okay i'll uh, we've got the recording going should i go get a glass of wine <laughs> Well, so sticking to data challenges. Yes, <laughs> stick with data. <laughs> well, I think you know the the big thing that we are always thinking about. I think as scientists, when we think about having having data sets, right, multiple data mm -hmm. points, is for one thing sample size. Right. Mm -hmm. the, the The issue is <clears throat> we have to do something with these data. We can't just have them. And right, we can't just sit there like, okay, we have the information, we're done. Got the we data. Have to, we have to do some form of inference. We have to try to pull something out of that, distill that into useful information, which mm -hmm. requires testing hypotheses or comparing expectations to reality, things like that. Right? We talk about confronting a model with data, which is a very, mm. very interesting scientific term. But the idea being yes. that we are coming up with models, which in this case is our, our kind of ideas about how we think the world works or something works, mm -hmm. going and collecting a bunch of data and saying, okay, well, does this fit? Does this yeah. make sense based on what we're thinking about? Mm -hmm. And in order to be able to trust what you're seeing, uh, you really want to have, you, you want to have a, a lot of evidence, right? There's a bit of this, this, it's not always as brute force as this, but there's kind of a force of evidence approach where you want to have enough information to say, yeah, okay, I believe that. Mm-hmm. If I told you that I had a perfectly fair coin, that mm -hmm. every time I flipped it, there was a 50-50 chance of heads or tails, mm -hmm. and, and I promised you that it was 50-50, and I said, okay, uh, I don't know, <laughs> we're, we're rolling something high stakes, right? You have to give mm -hmm. me your van if I... If I get, like, <laughs> give you barley. <laughs> right, right. Like, if I only showed you one flip, would you believe me that it was a fair coin? Yeah, of course not. Right? If I, if I, if I, I mean, I trust you. So okay. probably. If I was some random dude. <laughs> but if you were a random guy at a bar, yeah, no. Yeah. Like, this is probably getting to be too, too loosey goosey example. But, like, the yeah. point is, like, yeah, if someone's like, oh, yeah, it totally works, and, like, they flip the coin once, you're not going to, like, oh, yeah, that's proof that it works. You need, mm -hmm. you want to see, like, a couple hundred flips or something, right? And, like, see if the data, if it actually looks like it's close to 50 50. Mm -hmm. And it's a similar idea where, like, if we're trying to infer these more complicated patterns about the natural world or about this endangered bird in Hawaii or about this invasive vine that's spreading through the river systems of Mississippi or something, we can't just go and collect a couple things and say, okay, let's go back and think about it. Like, we need large yeah. amounts of data. And the sample size makes a big difference. Then, of course, that makes it challenging with, you know, you need to have enough money to collect the data and things like that. So, so ways of collecting information and data that are efficient cost efficient and quick and things like that that's a major challenge i think that we face as scientists getting the data in the right way yeah uh that's a big one and then also things like replication and control mm -hmm. if you're trying to compare different things right we're not in the laboratory where you can control everything and have only two things different right and, and make these very yeah. strong inferences when we're ecologists and conservation biologists we are dealing with a complicated reality. There's all Very. sorts of stuff going on, right? We're maybe we're trying to compare. <laughs> we're trying to compare these two tracts of forests and how many mm -hmm. of these beetles they have in them, or something. 
and then one day like a bunch of college students throw a massive party in one of your study sites and leave silver cups everywhere and that brings in i don't know spiders that murder all the beetles or something but like complicated things just happen yeah. and then if you only are looking at two sites you've learned nothing right and yeah. so you also yeah, have to like have this this variety and these ways of controlling for all those dynamic factors so i think yeah. those are some of the big uh uh logistical conceptual challenges we face as scientists mm -hmm. using the information we get we need to find ways to to make it useful and if, we, if, if it's not controlled and rigorous in those ways you, you can collect data that are useless is a bit strong but you can collect things that are less valuable right than other yeah, of types course. of data yeah, I know we, uh, you know, thinking about this on back when I was on the wind farm this summer with Niffler, um, especially so towards the end of migration season, we went from getting really high numbers of bats every single day to really, really low numbers quite abruptly. Mm. And the first couple days that happened, I was just walking behind him being like, there is no reason training wise that he would go from finding all of the bats to finding none of the bats. So I oh, have wow. to assume that this is a migration change but you know it's always this question of like is the dog not finding something am i not finding anything because it's not there or because of something that's going on with our training or something that's going on with the conditions you know we had one day where we were searching and it started pouring on us and it's like well that's probably damping down the scent a little bit um Big and time, i know man. again yeah, Dr. Hall does a lot of really cool research. Dr. Nathan Hall, who's at Texas Tech, um, does a lot of really cool research looking at environmental conditions for dogs and their ability to scent. Um, but then, you know, figuring out how to extrapolate that out to the real world, um, you know, taking sure. lab data into the real world. And again, yeah, looking at the messiness of the real world. Right. Um, actually, when you were talking about the uh, Aleulas and like their habitat preference, you're like, well, we can't ask them. And it's like, oh yeah, I suppose we can't because there's a, a somewhat famous study with chickens where um, there was a law that was being passed, I believe in the EU, um, about the the gauge of wire that needed to be at the bottom of laying hens contain like cages. Hmm. And they were going to change it to this thicker gauge wire, I think, because they right. thought it would be more comfortable for the birds. And they, I believe they changed it. And then some scientists at some point were like, huh, I wonder if they actually prefer that. And they just set up a bunch of birds in these cages that were nice. identical. They had food and water on both sides, but they yeah, just had different choice floors. Experiment. Yeah, and the birds the birds spent more time on the side with actually the original cage floor. Um, that, and I think they ended up reversing or not passing that legislation, whichever whether it had mm -hmm. gone through or not. But yeah, we can't do that. And even if we had a bunch of captive Aleula and started asking them, like, hey, do you prefer more water or less water? then figuring out how to extrapolate that out into like the actual reality of like Hawaii, which doesn't have all that much, like just, it doesn't have like oodles of spare land that we can just mess around with. Mm -hmm. There's very um, little in fact. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So even when we can get some of these answers in the lab world, it's then hard to extrapolate it out sometimes. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. All right, we are going to cut the conversation with Dr. Van Rees off here because it did go a little bit long and we are going to turn this one into a two-parter. So tune back next week 
to hear a, a little bit more from our data extravaganza with Dr. Charles Van Rees. And uh, I think you guys are going to continue enjoying this conversation. As always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and are feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. You can find show notes, donate to canine conservationists, and join our Patreon over at canineconservationists.org. You can find Charles at Gulo Thoughts on Twitter and Gulo Shots on Instagram. So it's G-U-L-O and then Thoughts or Shots, depending on the medium. You can also find him at vanreesconservation.com. And uh, I'm sure he will be thrilled to hear from any of you. And thank you so much for listening. And we will be back in your earbuds with the continuation of the conversation with Dr. Van Rees next week.